Tonight we begin two sermon series on Psalm 69. We proceeded through Psalm 68. We're going to do to Psalm 69 what we did to Psalm 68, which is to just break it in half. It's truly artificial because, of course, it's all meant to be read as one piece, but uh, just for the sake of uh, making it perhaps more manageable and drawing out uh, some points from it, we'll have two sermons, though those sermons, as before, when we looked at Psalm 68, will draw upon each different half at different times. The title for this one is A Man of Sorrows, and that takes us through the first 18 verses, when indeed it takes us beyond that, but we're just having that title for our considerations this evening, A Man of Sorrows. Well, we can see that those sorrows are considerable, prayer that is offered, verses 13 to 15, to be delivered from those difficulties where the mire is then, verse 14, parallel what we see in verse 2, there's the prayer to be delivered from it, and those deep waters again of verse 2, verse 14 has that prayer to be delivered out of those deep waters, a time of difficulty then for God's servant, and we see it is a psalm of David, so something of what we're reading here is something of what he experienced in his own life. This isn't a completely uh, alien, foreign thing that uh, we'll come to see most evidently in a minute, that this is speaking of Christ, but it wasn't totally unknown to David. He's writing about somewhere he's never been, things he's never heard of, experiences that are completely remote to his own experience. They weren't. We see within it, and verses 13 to 15, there are prayers to God for deliverance, for salvation, to be brought out of difficulties and hardships. There is confession of sin. Verse 5 has that. Oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. David might well have prayed that at one of the occasions when his own folly was most publicly on show when his own failures in faith were spectacularly publicized. And so there is a prayer there which would be of his and which we would take to be our own as well. And there is praise, and towards the end of the psalm, particularly, we see praise, that great element there, let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Both an instruction there from verse 34 but also in verse 30 that he himself, the sufferer, the man of sorrows, will praise the name of God with a song. And how that will gladden the hearts of the humble who see it and the poor who are watching. Well, really, this does have within it lots and lots of references across to the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ. David is a prophet. And he is speaking here prophetically beyond his own experience into a fuller experience and a fuller fulfillment of these experiences that will be in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where we talk about David being a type of Christ, an example of Christ, what he has himself written about and in measure experienced to a far greater extent and in a more exact sense will be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this psalm has many parallels with Psalm 22. So were you to follow the structure of Psalm 22, again, very much 
they're full of Christ's sufferings, then the similarities between that psalm and this psalm are very, very evident, covering something of the same ground. So our first heading really just develops that thought further. And it's this, Christ in all the scriptures. Christ in all the scriptures, which is a a frequent subject for consideration, particularly when you're in an Old Testament passage and referring to the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just going to take some of the direct references. There are quotations in the New Testament lifted straight from Psalm 69, the portion we're looking at this evening. But there are also wider references to what was the day-to-day experience of the Lord, but which were particularly accentuated on the cross, where he knew these things in a more precise, more acute, more painful way. We know that our Lord himself uh, was very busy in communicating that this is him in the scriptures to various of his disciples on various occasions. So in Luke chapter uh, 24, for instance, there uh, we read, in fact, on two occasions where he spells it out to people, indeed, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, opening their minds, spells it out that the Bible, all of scripture, is actually about him. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, and uh, this uh, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That would include David. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He is the subject of scripture. He is the object of scripture. He is the one spirit of Christ in the prophets, moving them to write about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that was to follow. And he is also the one who is revealed in scripture to us, the one that we find and come across in its pages later on. Same gospel, Luke, same chapter, 24, when he was with the disciples. It's reading from verse 44 and on from there. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so that, of course, when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, began very much to be brought into effect. So the law, the Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and they're all pointing, yes, to his resurrection, glory that would follow, but to his sufferings that would precede it. That's where we very much find ourselves this evening in this portion of God's word. So we see that uh, Psalm 69 verse 8 has its direct uh, quotation in John chapter 2 and verse 17, the first occasion, I believe there were two, first occasion of our Lord cleansing the temple. 
casting out the money changers and sellers of doves and everything else that was there. And we read as he does this, John 2 verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. The energy and the vigor, the zeal with which our Lord was consumed, that this was there totally overwhelming his whole person, that the glory of God, the honor of God was being slighted, damaged by the misuse of the temple precincts. And so he drove them out, that this was not what was to be done in his father's house, making it a house of merchandise. So verse 8 has its parallel there. Verse 4 in the passage that we read a moment ago in John chapter 15, verse 25, when the Lord is talking about how his experience, the hatred, note the word, don't we there, the hatred that people had for him will come down upon us too, I'm afraid. And he then shows that this is what scripture said would happen to him. This happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Then we might also just add there that in verse 21, although that isn't immediately before us uh, this evening, nevertheless, uh, there is reference there again to Christ's sufferings. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Were we to turn there to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we'd find references to him on the cross, thirsting, firstly at verse 34, and they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. Later on in that same gospel, there at verse uh, 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And there's also a reference, I won't read it now, but in John 19, verse 29, the Lord says that I thirst. And uh, they brought an offering uh, to him in that way there. So it's some direct quotes, and they're all in this psalm, and they're all to be replicated in the life of the Lord Jesus, particularly at the cross, but the hatred, well, was just magnified and came out in its full fury at the cross, but was actually simmering away all the time of his ministry. And yet really we could say that, uh, that all of it, in one way or other, even though it's not always quoted, but that experience is there with him throughout his earthly ministry. While we exempt him from having in verse 5 there to confess his sins, he has no sin to have to confess. But everything else that is there within these passages is really his experience in life. All the misfortunes, the hands of others, betrayals, denials, friends fleeing from him, no justice that he was given. The sense of desertion, being alone with this overwhelming experience of suffering, the injustice of it, the accentuation of it that brings such anguish to his soul, such a sense of isolation. And while we can see it in measure, in the behavior of the wicked toward him, and we can see their attitudes excluding him, casting him away, going to his own, and his own would not receive him. 
But he is speaking of something even more dreadful than that. That he's speaking of isolation and exclusion and of being reproached by his own father, by his heavenly father. A sense there of losing utterly all that he counted upon and being very much at sea in a state of of need, a state of great aloneness. That is the just for the unjust. We see him as he is reflected there in verse 14. Though I've stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Does it on behalf of others? He's sinless. He's stolen nothing. Nothing from his neighbor. Nothing from the glory of God. But he's now being made accountable for all the damages that sinners have done. Every way in which we have stolen from our neighbors, stolen their respect. We thought about these things, didn't we, in the Ten Commandments a few months back. Stolen uh, in all senses, stolen their time, their energy, you name it, whatever it might be. And he's repaying on our behalf. He's repaying God for all the ways in which we have infringed upon his kindness. And it's very noticeable how overwhelming the experience is. That's right with us at the beginning of the psalm, isn't it? We cries out, save me, O God. What has happened with the waters? Come up to my neck. I'm sinking in deep mire where there's no standing. Come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. This all-engulfing, all-consuming experience where there is, there is nothing solid. There's no firm footing. Everything that once was relied upon gave stability and solidity to things, his relationship with his father, gone, taken from under him. And the idea is, it's like the mire on the, the ocean floor. There's nothing, you're sinking in it. You're, you're in deep waters and you could do with finding the bottom, as it were, to have a chance of, 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 of getting out of this, but you can't. And you're just sinking further. You're just drowning in it, engulfed in it, with no, no rescue that you can effect for yourself. This overwhelming, all-engulfing experience. And it's, it's mirrored elsewhere in the Psalms. Psalm uh, 40, for instance, and in verse 2, he also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. And that's the answer that he got. But before he got the answer, it was a situation of miry clay, a horrible pit. This was somewhere you couldn't get out of, and he needed help. Psalm 42, verse 7, where it calls about deep calls unto deep, at the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me. But here he is in deep waters. This is an overwhelming experience, and there is no firm footing. Or there's a final instance of it in Psalm uh, 88, and in verse 7, again, a very very strong in its suffering, this psalm, very strong, unremitting in the, the, the kind of dark themes that it unfolds. The Psalm 88, verse 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. These aren't just sort of gentle ripples here. This isn't the bucket and spade kind of sea and nice beaches and kind of calm seas. This, this, is, this is a tempest. This is drowning. This is something very tumultuous. And it was all bearing down upon, upon him. 
And that is where the cross is illustrating this in its its nth degree, if you like, in its most acute, in its most extreme version. And this is his distress, not here at the hands of men, not all the grief that they have caused, though it does. And they cast him off and they ostracize him and they heap reproaches upon him. But moreover, this is where he is bearing sin and bearing it on our behalf. We can see beyond this overwhelming experience there that uh, there are particular distresses that he, he experiences. Here, perhaps at the hands of his fellow human beings, but they did indeed hate him with, without a cause. That there was that nature of their behavior towards him that was to hate him without a cause. John chapter 8, and uh, in verse 40, for instance, there. And now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. This is not belonging to the family of people of faith. They do not want to kill me, and you do, hating me without a cause. And when he speaks of mighty people in verse 4 and judges in verse 12 of hating him, then we might be taken to John chapter 18. And for instance, uh, when he is held up before the high priest, put on trial, the high priest then asked in John 18 verse 19, asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. In secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus in the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? They hated him without a cause. They had no reason, no justice on their side for treating him in the way they did, for their anger and outrage against him. This was totally and utterly out of place. And it is when people know they haven't really got a reason for that hatred that they, they sort of generate it from within. And it knows no bounds then. It kind of goes beyond that because they haven't actually got good reason for the negative feelings they have, then they, they actually just generate even more negative feelings, just find reasons to, to hate that person, invent reasons, and find those reasons compelling in order to quieten the conscience. So it has to just become boiling fury. And that is what our Lord had to experience. He who knew no evil, he had spoken no evil, but finding people were voicing the most ugly things against him. He's a stranger to his family in verse 8. And well, we can see that mirrored, for instance, in John chapter 7, where we learn that his own family did not believe in him. We're just reading from John 7, reading from verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. He was a stranger to them. They did not understand his mission. And when we learn of him weeping in verse 10, well, there's the man of sorrows indeed, weeping. Well, that became a reason to laugh at him, that he becomes a byword, that the intensity of what he felt then becomes a byword and people mock him. The piety and the holiness, which wasn't fake, wasn't put on, but came from his heart. We find him weeping, don't we, there at the at the tomb of Lazarus, John 11, verses 33 to 35. On that occasion, a bit of negative comment, verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind to have saved this man from dying, though they took a bit of a front at him, seeing the intensity of his feeling, seeing death, seeing results of sin, weeping, groaning in his spirit. And then in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. Again, strong, strong emotions that he feels when he sees that city. And that the people had worked out what, what that was all about, what he actually felt for that city, even in its, its opposition. But he, he wept for them as he drew near Luke 19 verse 41. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, and now they are hidden from your eyes. And he wept for them. Instead of learning from that and perhaps feeling, what is this? What is this that we are getting so wrong here? What is it that is moving this messenger from heaven to look at us and to weep? Weep for what's coming upon us. Weep for what we're bringing on ourselves. Instead, turned it round and mocked him. And all the reproach and the shame and the dishonor that's spoken of in verse 9. And in verse 19, the offense that people took at him, the anger, the sense of shame that they felt, what he was doing, what he was saying about himself. How dare he say this? You can see that in Mark 14 and verses 63 to 65 with the, the further trial and the, the high priest there and his indignation and all that he felt hearing the Lord speaking about himself coming with the clouds of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the power. Mark 14, verse 63, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. They follow that up then by beginning to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him and say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. So what of that? All of that exclusion, treatment, isolation, so that you can hit and hurt and harm. All the indignation and outrage at what he was saying. And yet in the end, all of it was to be eclipsed by what he would know on the cross. And the shame of that and the dishonor that was to be his to drink in. And reproaches now, which were not the reproaches of the sinful, actually the reproaches of his heavenly father, holding him now at arm's length, causing him to have no communion with him, holding him very much there in that place where he'll be overwhelmed by the wrath of God. 
This is what hell is like, friends. It's being overwhelmed with the sense of the wrath of God. That was his to bear. That was his to experience. Exposed. There's no hiding place. There's no get out clause. And it's overwhelming. There's, there's no footing. What used to be relied upon his walk with God, his, his knowledge of him, his obedience, his prayer life where he called upon his heavenly father and knew that he was heard. Now he knows that's actually something has changed, dramatically changed. And there isn't that communion. There's that cry, isn't there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Save me, oh God, as we have it here in Psalm 69. There's a sense of distance now. There, there isn't a, a familiarity. There isn't a comfortable communion. There's its opposite. He's feeling adrift. He's feeling cut off. He's feeling separated. He's feeling isolated. And we shouldn't think of this as a bit of make-believe, as though the Father and the Son in the Council's redemption in time past came up with this, and it would just be a bit of a play-act almost, a bit of make-believe, that I'll pretend to sort of hide behind the bushes or something there, and I'll pretend I've forgotten you, and uh, we'll just kind of play this thing out like this. No, it's real. Uh, intensely real. It had to be intensely real because he has to experience what sin deserves, what it would bring upon the sinner if we're left to our own devices and don't call upon the Lord for salvation. This was not something that was kind of toned down a bit. That's it's too, too brutal an experience for the sinless Son of God to have, that the Father who loves the Son would spare him a little bit of this. Now, the whole agreement, the whole covenant meant that it had to be fully experienced, that this was full and judicial outpouring of the anger and the wrath of the judge whose laws have been broken, holy and good laws. And the object of displeasure is now his own son. Not artificial and not sort of worked up, but this is an intense and a real transaction that is happening here and had been agreed that it should be so. And it was there all in scripture that it should be so. And the behavior of people in their sinful behavior, excluding and ostracizing and, and making him an object there of their own displeasure, becomes the object of God's displeasure but in a purer sense and out of motives and out of springs of action that are pure, that this is God's law that has been broken and this is the penalty. And here it is poured out upon the Son of God. And it was real. And in his humanity, we thought about that the other week, didn't we, there, and marveled at what it means there for him to be fully human. Well, here is what it means to be fully human and fully human as a sinner, to identify with sinners. So out of all of the resources of his pure humanity, he's able now to experience in that pure soul what it means to receive wrath and judgment, as though deserving of those very sins himself, to feel the active displeasure of God against those sins, that God is angry with the wicked every day. And he knew that anger 
And so in that way, he was borrowing what should be our experience, what should be our dessert. And he made it his dessert. And as he'd been baptized, and that's to identify with us and fulfill righteousness. So what Psalm 69 is, is opening up to us here and the reproaches and the shame and all of the, 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 that which is brought upon him, the overwhelming sinking feeling in the mire was to borrow from our experience, make it his own experience and felt experience. So there is Christ in all the scriptures, abandoned, looked upon as reprehensible. And we learn from that, don't we? Two quick things. Sin really is that bad. <laughs> Sin really, really is that bad. But that is what it brings. That's what it will bring to us. And hell is really that awful. <laughs> there's, there's the other thing there. This, this isn't a, a kind of holiday or some sort of theme parky type thing or just some lesser version of heaven there. And it's all a bit of fun, really. This isn't fun. This is pretty serious stuff. And that is what he was willing to have. This, this is what he knew in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the cup of suffering that made him quail, that made him quiver at the thought of having to receive it. And those prayers and all the strengthening, all the help he needed to go through with it and to remain going through with it. He was helped actually in this, helped to stay in this, to stay there while it's all deep waters, no standing, floods overflowing him. His cry from the cross, weary with his crying, throat is dry. When he cried out, then the eye thirst. That's fulfilling this scripture, what he would feel there. And that thirst, as much as anything, didn't have just a physical component. Those who rushed with the sour wine and the gall and the vinegar missed the point entirely. He was thirsting, actually, for that relationship and fellowship with his God and Father. He was looking for that to be restored. He was waiting beyond what he knew to be his now, for when that would be restored, when he would be delivered. It was like his prayer for deliverance in the multitude of God's mercy and in the truth of his salvation to be delivered out of the mire. He's thirsting for that happier experience to come, but thirsting in the midst of the, the darkness and the deep waters that were his. Hell really is that bad. Sin really does bring that retribution, that punishment down. Well, my final and very brief heading, secondly, we're not to take offense at him, not to take offense at him. We thought about that a little bit this morning in another context, but, but here we, we see again that we could take offense at the whole idea that that is what sin is. That's what it does. That's what he was required to say. No, far be it for you, Lord, to have to suffer these things, do a bit of a Peter, get in the way of the plan of God. And reinvent these sufferings to be something else, mean something else. But this is penal substitution, given it its long title. This is Christ, our substitute, bearing the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And this, this is what death looks like. It's a living experience here and a dreadful one at that. And we're not to take offense at him in that. Take offense at God. That the father should do this. Some do. They say, well, this is dreadful. You can't have him offering himself to his father for this reason, to suffer kind of judicial, penal wrath of God. That cannot be. That's an act, and it's been said, and we could name the names again, that's an act of 
cosmic child abuse. The father wouldn't do that. No father would do that to their child, surely. And so they dismiss it. But they just dismissed, actually, the entirety of the whole sacrificial system of the Bible and what it means. That it is. The sacrifice is a substitute for the worshipper. It should be their blood, but it's the animal's blood. Well, that won't do any longer. It has to be like for like. Man has sinned, then man must pay the penalty. And here the God-man is doing it, not cosmic child abuse, but salvation, full and free. This is mercy. This, This is grace. This is the blood shed, without which no remission of sin. Some people take offense, don't they, there? And 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 it's there, isn't it? Verse 6 is really what I'm taking as the theme for this. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. And let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I bore reproach. Seeing this exposure, seeing this ill treatment, seeing the cross, this offensive, well, to the Jews, wasn't it? And to the Greeks too, this offensive method of death. And so the prayer is that we wouldn't be offended at him, not offended at his divinity, because his divinity has not gone away, not departed from him when he's on the cross. Oh, yes, in the mystery of the incarnation, that he's having to suffer in his humanity, these things. Divinity doesn't die. Divinity doesn't suddenly rupture from divinity. We can puzzle that one out then. I'm sure we'll never get an answer to it. But his humanity can. That's why he came in the flesh, so that he could experience that in the flesh, that he could be our substitute. So we don't take offense at his divinity, say it can't be there. Perhaps it never was. Surely was. Nor take offense at his humanity, the nature of these sufferings, because that's where the Muslims, for instance, really balk at this. How can God allow this? How can a savior be caught up in that kind of experience, suffer these things. Oh no, be a superhero kind of figure, be a great warrior kind of figure, somebody who doesn't look weak and doesn't look as if they're absolutely excluded and the dregs of the earth can't be. And so they take offense at him in this. And so we see in him there, not one to take offense at or be confounded or be ashamed of him, Rather, we look at him and salute him, honor him, thankful to him that that's where he went, that's what he did, that you and I won't have to, that we look forward, actually, look at death, look beyond it and say, oh, yes, we may wonder at it, but it's not going to then lead us into the second death, which is this, this is the sinner's doom, the sinner's lot, that we have heaven, pleasantness, the joy that was set before him is the joy that's set before us. And that joy is to be with him, not a suffering saviour. This is once for all, not to be repeated, not needed. It will be a triumphant saviour who returns. It will be the king of kings and the lord of lords. It will be him coming on the clouds, being at the right hand of the power, and that every eye will see him. Yes, that day is coming. Full vindication. What he prayed for there in that acceptable time, that he would be delivered certainly happened. And we'll see it fully one day. But indeed, we already know it because he's met with us, saved us from our sin, assured us that it is well with our soul and sent us on our way with a song of praise to him. 
A Man of Sorrows. So let's sing our closing hymn, 221, the hymn of that name, Man of Sorrows, what a name.